Some time ago, the creators of an irreverent little cartoon show called South Park were interviewed about a play they put on Broadway. Like so much of their work, it was comedic and it had to do with religion. They've found all kinds of humor in every kind of religious expression, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, all of it, including the religious stance of atheism. And in talking about their new show and their new musical, which dealt so much with religion, they said this to the Wall Street Journal. We are fascinated by the idea that happiness and faith could be higher values than truth. And they asked this question. What if the truthfulness of religious stories doesn't matter, but faith in them does? Got the question? What if truthfulness of religious stories doesn't matter, but faith in them does? That's a question for our time. And they're asking a question, but really making a point. Have you ever asked a question to make a point? I, my sons are playing, well, one of them is. I keep forgetting one of them graduated. But One of my boys is playing football, and, and I love to hear the questions that coaches ask. Many times they're not actually seeking information. They're delivering it like this. How many times do I have to tell you? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Why don't you understand what you are supposed to do? And hardly ever does the kid reply because he knows it's not a real question. It's, it's a point. What these guys are saying is we're, we're getting used to the idea, and they say we don't, we don't have faith, but we admire it. We like what faith does to people. If it li makes life more beautiful, if it makes life more meaningful, who cares if it's true? That's the heart of the question. And you need to have an answer for that. Because today we're talking about the most extraordinary thing that's ever happened in human history. As I hope to show you from the Bible, it is the very basis of your faith. If it didn't happen, there's no real point in being here. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Of all the stories of faith that, could ever been, uh, that have ever been told, perhaps none is harder to believe than this, because in our human experience, dead people stay dead. Sometimes when you read the stories of the Bible, the historical accounts of the Bible, and make no mistake, the author of this gospel is taking great pains to let you know from the very beginning of his gospel, in the gospel of Luke, that he is a second-generation Christian, that he wasn't an eyewitness to these events, but having been moved by them, and since they were so talked about, he said, I took it upon myself to investigate them carefully and to write down an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And he writes the Gospel of Luke in the form of a letter to a man named Theophilus saying, this is what my investigation yielded. I set myself to find out of all the stories, all the things that were circulating about Jesus, what really happened, and here's, here's what I learned, Theophilus. I'm at the end of his gospel, end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, please, if you'll look there. We're going to read one of those stories that is absolutely, make no mistake about it, it is in the gospels, it is in the Bible because it wants to call forth your faith. 
your trust. See, what these comedians were asking is, who cares if it's true as long as you trust it? As long as you believe it, who cares if it actually happened? The Bible has an answer to that. I hope to share that with you. But we have to start with the story itself. In Luke chapter 23, and I've so appreciated what so many of you have told me about Pastor Fred's teaching and preaching last week. We read from Luke's account in Luke chapter 23, verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. All the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now Luke is going to start giving you historical detail, and his intention, I am convinced, is to certify to you, the reader, his first readers and any reader that would ever pick up his report, his investigation, he is now going to try to certify to you that Jesus actually died. As you read this, understand that in our age there is a bias against the past and there is a bias against the supernatural. I mean, we're in an age where things are trendy and 48, 48 hours later nobody's heard about them. Remember the blue and gold dress? What happened to that? Who knows? Who cares? That's, I mean, that's, that's been a while ago. Who cares about that stuff? moving fast. So, our bias is against the past. If it's not happening now, or better, if we can't anticipate it in the future, it must be wrong or stupid or unimportant. And there is also a bias against anything that cannot be explained by physical means. If it's not material, if I can't put my hands on it, it's to be suspected or disbelieved. Luke, actually a Gentile physician, not a Jew, and not a layman, a doctor is now going to give you the kind of historical detail that is intended to tell the reader this really happened. Here's the first. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. A centurion was a Roman officer uh, that had under his charge 100 men. In the ancient world, there was no army more feared than the Roman than the Roman soldiers, and a man in charge of a hundred of them must have been a fearsome man indeed. Believe me, a Roman centurion would have known exactly what death looked like. Those Roman soldiers were there to torture Jesus, humiliate him, inflict fear in the hearts of the people observing what was happening and to make absolutely sure that he was dead. Luke doesn't tell us this, but another gospel writer does. That's why they ran him through with the spear and water and blood separated came pouring out. He was dead. But something happened on that hillside that made this hard-bitten man who knew what death smelled and tasted like say, we killed an innocent man. And he's praising God about it. It's not regretful. This man said, can tell somehow that God is at work in all this. Verse 48, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. That's a Jewish symbol of grief, of repentance. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. That's a sad little detail. Where were the people who loved Jesus the most? 
at a distance. That's understandable. They're killing the one. <laughs> These are his followers. It would have taken rare courage, and only a few exhibited it that day, to stand near the cross of Jesus. Most of his followers are noting it. Then Luke tells us that something extraordinary happens. In the very next section, he tells us that a man from the religious council that had given a death sentence against Jesus asked for his body. Verse 50, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut, it, cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of the preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. What's happening here? Jesus' body has been taken down from the cross just in time for a day of religious celebration. There is no time to honor his body and to prepare it as they would have liked. The Jews did not embalm, but they did pack the body with many spices around it to slow the decomposition, to lessen the smell. I'm sorry if this is gruesome talk for church, but we're talking about death. And what you have here are ordinary women, not religious women, not important women. You have ordinary women doing the best that they can. And you know, that's the best part of people. We have some amazing ladies who go once a week to feed the families at the Ronald McDonald House in Orange. And that's a place where death is hovering all the time. And there are many times where no human intervention can help. And you know what they do? They do the best they can. They make meals and they sit down and they listen and they talk and they laugh and they pray and they give comfort. They're doing the best they can. That's what these women are doing. They're observing the Sabbath and hurrying as best they can to make preparations to give Jesus a proper send-off. Why? Because he's dead. The soldier wasn't wrong. The crowd wasn't wrong. The women aren't wrong. When Joseph of Arimathea certainly from, with help went up the, a ladder to that cross and took a mangled corpse off the cross and wrapped it in a linen shroud, normally you have to go to battlefields to see scenes that somber. We've done everything in our culture to make death removed, to make it look like it's not real. This is the first century. These are not stupid people. Make no mistake, they're ancient, not foolish. They know what death is, and they know that Jesus is dead. And they're taking him and placing him in a linen shroud. Women are preparing for, to honor his body, and he is being placed in a tomb that no one has ever been in, a borrowed tomb, a gifted tomb. Verse, chapter 24, verse 1, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, same women, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
But when they went in and they did not, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, while they were perplexed about this, can you understand their perplexity? See, if you make this a Sunday school story with the flannel graph, some of you remember flannel graph, <laughs> you'll miss the point. These are real women walking into a day that is going to be hot, tracing their way as best they can to the spot they remember very well with these kinds of questions. How will we ever get access to the body? Luke didn't tell us, but Jesus' enemies feared even now that the body would be stolen and a Roman guard had been placed on it with the seal of the government on top of it saying, cross this and cross Rome and die just like he did. I mean, he's dead. It's over. He's finished. That's what everybody who didn't believe in Jesus thought about him, and it appears that even the people who knew him are stunned by what follows. I don't have time, but I can direct you to resources of all kinds of theories that have been made to explain away the death of Jesus, including something called the swoon theory that he lost consciousness on the cross, woke up in the coldness of the tomb, and got himself out. Nonsense. His body would have been utterly drained of blood. He would have had no living functions now for three days. I mean, it's, it's over. And the women are surprised to find that this stone, which perhaps weighed three or four tons, which was rolled in place down a little groove track that had been built and carved in, into the cliff for the very purpose, the stone is removed. They go in. They don't understand where the body is. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now let's name the players. Who are the eleven? Those are the original disciples, right? They're 11 now because Judas was a traitor who committed suicide in his grief and remorse over betraying Jesus. There's 11 left, and other have other associates who weren't that close to Jesus but followed him. The women tell them with great excitement that Jesus is, has been announced to them by an angelic visitation. A messenger from God said, don't look for living people among the dead. Remember what he told you. All that's happening here is exactly what Jesus said. Verse 10, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other with them who told them these things to the apostles. Now, why would Luke name the women? Witnesses. Remember, we're reading a 2,000-year-old history. It was real time when Luke wrote it. He's naming names. He's saying the commanding officer in charge of the crucifixion. He's saying Joseph of Arimathea, who was actually on the council, and he's also saying these women who we all know, they're going to keep on living. 
These aren't nameless, faceless people. In other words, in his time, so that his readers will believe and ask if they're not convinced, Luke is doing this much. He's saying, this is what happened if you don't believe me. If you need further illumination on the subject, ask them. And they talked to the apostles, verse 11, the other women with them who told these things to, these, to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. And what's it say? They did not believe them. Old wives' tales, one Bible translation has. Now, why would it translate it that way? Isn't that kind of offensive to women? Well, yes, it is. That's the point. Understand this. In the first century culture, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. Sorry, ladies. Things have improved. We have a ways to go, but things are better. In the first century, what they said didn't matter. I mean, in the family it did, but in a legal proceeding, if we're going to determine guilt and innocence, if we're going to determine damages, what a woman had to say in a court, unimportant, not admissible. So why would they concoct a story where the women were the first witnesses? Why did Luke write it that way? Any guesses? That's the way it happened. (laughs) History's messy. It's disorganized. You don't always have PhDs on hand with video video cameras rolling while things happen. They were going to do the best they can. Their disciples were downhearted and dispirited. They were gone. Peter is dealing with his own guilt of having denied Jesus. Peter was the leader of the apostles. There's no telling the mentality of the others. The flock has been scattered because the shepherd has been killed. And the first to know that it didn't happen were the women who didn't believe it. They were just going to do the best they could for a dead body. They come back and tell the disciples, we've heard from God. God left witnesses behind to tell us that Jesus is alive And they did not believe them, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I can well imagine. Love Peter. This is so characteristic of Peter. Later, you'll see him in the Gospel of John diving out of a boat and swimming a hundred yards fully clothed because Jesus is on the beach. Peter, in other words, is an ordinary Christian. It's very hard for him to believe sometimes the things that God is doing and that God is keeping his promises, but he is at least eagerly going to investigate. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. This is a little funny. Because they're going to be talking about him, and he's walking alongside listening. You ever had the privilege of listening to somebody talk about you when they didn't know you were there? <laughs> it's actually one of the best features of speaking two languages. Sometimes people talk about me in Santa Ana, and I can listen in. <laughs> Jesus is doing that. Two disciples are walking along the road talking about Jesus, it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas, there's a name again. 
See, this isn't a fictional story. These things are happening with real people, and they're not the best people to create a story. It's recorded that way because that's the way it actually happened. He answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to him, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Do they understand the story? They've got it. Are they the slightest bit encouraged about any of this? No. Why? Because they had a different expectation of Jesus. They said, we thought he was the one who was going to take care of Israel. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They were right. They just didn't understand it even by half. So many people in Jesus' time thought that he was a political and a social deliverer. They lived under that heavy boot of the Romans every single day, and they thought Jesus was the one maybe to make them free, give them their nation back, give them their sovereignty, their freedom to worship God, someone to draw them close to God. They had no idea that his plan, as you're going to see in just about two more minutes, went far beyond anything they had expected. They're disappointed with Jesus. Part of following Jesus is from time to time, you're going to put false expectations on him and you're going to be disappointed with him. And that's why these gospels are written in all of this beautiful, detailed, personal, historical accuracy. Jesus said to them, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, in other words, the entire Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there for that Bible teaching session? I mean, I'm doing the best I can, but listen, this was the master class. This was it. He opened up the Bible and said, gentlemen, everything you've ever read, everything you've ever heard in the synagogue, everything your rabbis told you, if it wasn't about me, they were wrong. Everything God said pointed to me and to this moment. So they drew near to the village where they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke and gave it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. I wonder what it was that finally opened their eyes. It was the work of God, but I wonder if these two were not there the day that Jesus fed 5,000. Because it said there he took bread and broke it and distributed among them. I wonder if Jesus had a characteristic way of breaking bread. 
I wonder if there wasn't something that happened at that little table that opened their eyes momentarily and they understood who they were with and how silly and misguided their sadness and their sorrow and how wrong-headed their misunderstanding really was. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Do you know why? Because he had been dead. If you've ever laid someone in the ground and wept over their grave, you too would be startled and shocked to see them calmly standing among you. Everything in Luke's gospel is intended to tell you that everything he's telling you is not a mere religious feel-good story. It's actually true. It actually happened. It's real. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and that would have been a gruesome scene. Because Roman iron would have pierced those limbs. The wounds are real. This is what helped to kill me, he says. And while they still disbelieved for joy, I love that little phrase, read the Bible more slowly. That's my biggest tip to you if you're reading the Bible. You ever disbelieve something for joy? See, there's two reasons at the extremes of human experience for not believing something. One is for sadness and shock. I've been on the scenes of of situations where someone has very recently died and had to tell someone that their loved one was dead? And they almost always say one word, no. You push back against the worst, and you disbelieve it for grief. This is different. This is better. They can't believe it because it's so good. They didn't see this one coming. Do you see how the disciples are coming off in this story? How do they appear to you as disciples so far in what you've read in Luke 24? Good guys, bad guys? Maybe not bad, but certainly lamentable, right? The women who are just doing the best they can, so far they're the best and only witnesses. They're the first to come to it. Why is it written this way? Because that's the way it happened. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took and ate it before them. Why? He's trying to help them. Look, boys, I'm eating. Remember all the meals we had? Remember how we used to laugh around the campfire? If you think Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor, again, read the Bible more slowly. He does. He's eating with them. He's trying to normalize their situation. He's trying to open their eyes to this extraordinary idea that this has actually happened. 
And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Wow. What's Luke's point? He wants you to know that all of this is real. First of all, Jesus really did rise from the dead. He was actually dead. And the centurion and the female witnesses and the council member and the disbelieving disciples and people wandering into tombs and not understanding why the body isn't there. Two disciples walking seven miles from Jerusalem grieving their fallen Savior. All of that is written so that Luke, the physician, the Gentile physician, could tell the readers then and now, this actually happened. And the point of Jesus really rising from the dead is this. Jesus really does save. He keeps opening the Bible with the same Bible you hold in your hands, the first 39 books of your Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures saying, listen, read, understand, open your mind and see that I am the embodiment. I am the personal promise, and God has kept every single promise in me at this moment in history. That's why Paul, the apostle, who was first a Pharisee who didn't believe a word of it and helped jail and kill people who did, said in one of his early letters to one of the first churches, in Jesus, all of the promises of God are yes. Everything God ever promised comes true in Jesus. He really does save. The reason he was on the cross was to keep God's promises and to save from sin. Look back to verse 6. The angel said to the women, he is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. It was a travesty. It was the worst injustice in the history of the world. It was a complete miscarriage of any kind of justice in the world to kill Jesus, but he did it for my sins and yours. That's the point. From God's perspective, and Pastor Fred, I understand and know, helped you understand that what God was doing was keeping his promises to us and making Jesus the sin bearer. Since he had no sins of his own, he took mine upon himself. Wow. No one's ever loved me like that. And I've been loved. I'm not complaining. I've been more blessed than I can tell you by human love, but... No one will ever love me like the Father loved me to send his sinless son into the world to take every wicked, ugly, nasty, embarrassing thing that if I told you, you wouldn't want me to ever open the Bible in front of you again. If you knew the real me and I knew the real you, we would never speak again out of sheer embarrassment. All of that was being laid on Jesus at the cross. The Bible explains it elsewhere like this. He knew him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus suffered for sin, Peter says, to take us to God. He was opening up that veil. He was building that bridge. He was extending his righteous sin-bearing hand to the Father and taking ours 
Jesus really does save. And that's the point. And here's Paul's answer who gave his life for it. Here's Paul's answer to the Corinthian church, an early group of Christians who had a hard time believing in the resurrection. That may seem hard for you to understand, but there were, in the very first generation of Christians, there were some that heard the gospel from Paul who said, can't be true. Dead men don't come undead. If he was dead, that's it. And you can sympathize with them because that's the way we understand it to go. No one ever goes to a funeral expecting that the center of attention will rise and greet us. I mean, it's over. Death is final. Paul knows full well how difficult it is to believe what he's explaining, but he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, in other words, who have died with their faith in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's a big verse, and that's the answer to the South Park guys. You understand what Paul's saying? Look at it carefully. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if all Jesus does for you is get you a better life here, if the dead stay dead and there's no eternal life in Christ, but Jesus helps you make your life better, what's Paul say about that? It's pitiful. It's pathetic. Who cares if your life got better if it's not built on truth? Let's imagine a scenario. What would you think of a public high school that received as a freshman a student with a profound mental disability? And someone persuaded that school from student body to faculty to principal to school board to, out of love for that child, make him believe the four years he was at school that he was the most brilliant student among them, that his grades were perfect. In other words, when he, gave, when he presented a physics exam, it would not matter what he wrote on it. They would give him 100, put an A-plus on the paper, and congratulate him on his brilliant work. And then at graduation, receive him and honor him as the valedictorian and even have a letter made up, present it to him, telling him it was from Harvard University, giving him a full-ride scholarship to study anything he pleased. And the student, because of his mental disability, does not for one moment suspect that it's all not true. Would you admire that school? Would you think that was a good idea? Do you think that was loving? No. That would be cruel. Such school leaders would certainly be driven out of the profession. Everyone who participated in that charade would have been taken aside and explained how absolutely brutal that was. Why? For this single fact, it's not true. That's what Paul's saying here. If Jesus is just another idea to improve your life here and now, and that's what Barnes & Noble will tell you in the religious section. So many books about Jesus say something like the South Park guy said, who cares if it's true? It can make your life beautiful here and now, not if it's not true. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? He is the very first and the best of a coming harvest of people who will live again after they die. That's your hope. See, that's why Paul told the Thessalonians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Yes, we grieve. I've wept and bitterly in hospital rooms and at gravesides, and I have grieved deeply, and it has rattled me for a long time. But I, the nature of my grief is different because I know that person had their faith in Christ. I know they're already with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul said, and I know that I am going to them, and someday at a time of God's own choosing, we will be together again. And as Tolkien said in his books, one day all the sad things will come untrue because Jesus really has risen from the dead. Sin is covered and death is defeated. That's the good news. The good news is not that Jesus improves life here and now. The good news is that your sin in Christ is covered and death for you is defeated. That's why Jesus told his disciples this, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. That's what he told the disciples just before going to the cross. In just a short period of time, I will disappear from the world's sight, but you will see me, and here's the promise. Here's Jesus' promise to everyone who trusts him, everyone who believes him. He said, because I live, what's it, what's it saying? You also will live. See, that's the difference. That's why graves are heartbreaking but not final. That's why death is hurtful but not utterly destructive of hope. Because he lives, we will live also. What's this have to do with you and me? It's not intended for you and me to merely improve our lives here. Make no mistake, it does that too, but that's not the point. Jesus really rose from the dead because he rose from the dead. He really does save. And finally, Jesus really does intend for us to tell everyone. The final thing he opened the Bible to tell them at the end of Luke 24 is just that. Verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to who? To all nations. Here's the end of racism in the lips of Jesus. He is not a savior of a single particular ethnic group. All nations, including nations who do not currently know him, disbelieve him, and will initially reject his name. His intention is for those nations to know him. That's why inmates can get down in a hometown buffet and unashamedly pray to Jesus to save their souls, and he does. You know what society generally does with people in that condition? They want to hide them. Get them backstage. Just stay out of the way. Don't remind us of what you've done. Don't remind us what a burden you've been on society. Who does Jesus save? Anyone and everyone who will trust him. We had tribal missionaries at our church in Mexico, and the man still dressed as they do in his tribe, looking very different from the middle-class Mexicans he was addressing, said this, we once prayed and worshiped the stones and the rivers. Now we know the one true God. I, wow, here's Luke 24 right in front of me. 
people walking six and seven hours to church on Sunday because there was no church closer. That's why we were trying to help start churches so that they wouldn't have to walk quite as far. Who does these things? Jesus Christ. What effect did it have on the disciples? Every single one of them were willing to die violently, save John the apostle who died in exile. Every one of them was murdered. Remember Thomas? We give him a nasty little nickname. We call him Doubting Thomas. Did you know you can go to India today and find statues and monasteries and churches and all kinds of things with St. Thomas's name on it all over India because Doubting Thomas ended up in India telling people about Jesus. And you know what they did to him for his trouble? They killed him. Why didn't he back down? Why didn't he back off? Because he knew it was true. See, understand this. Sometimes people are willing to die for a lie, but not if they know it's a lie. There are many religious lies. On 9-11, 19 men murdered thousands of others because they believed sincerely that the moment of their death would take them straight into paradise. They were willing to do that because they believed it to be so, but they did not willingly die for something they knew wasn't true. These are eyewitnesses. They had already given up. They were already moving on with their lives. They were already ordering what life was going to be like without Jesus. But they were so moved, so turned around, so transformed by seeing him back from the dead and understanding truly for the first time in their entire lives their scriptures that they never looked back. And they were murdered in all kinds of places in the most heinous ways possible, all designed to make them take it back, and they were unwilling to do so. And you and I, 2,000 years later, we have an extraordinary opportunity. We have freedom like never has been seen in the history of the world. We have money and leisure like no people in the history of earth has ever experienced. You may feel like your budget is tight. Understand, Jesus started his movement with people who were, lived on the edge of poverty every single day. But because they knew it was real, they started something that went from a handful of scared men and completely transformed the world so that Christ is known and loved everywhere. He's known and loved in the Middle East and in North Africa, where knowing and loving Jesus in some cultures and countries is punishable by death. You stand in a great family of Christians who some lay down their lives even now. There were more Christian martyrs, some researchers say, in the 20th century than in any other time in human history. Why is that so? Because it's real. You didn't gather for a story. You're not here to celebrate a metaphor. You're not here to celebrate a good idea. You are here because there is a real living person. His name is Jesus. He is the very Son of God who takes away the sin of the world and makes the worst thing that could ever happen to you on earth, your death, turn into eternal life simply because you know him and love him and trust him. He's a good Savior. So what should our church do? I don't think in our lifetime we'll have to face the kind of pressure and pushback that the early disciples did. And we should leverage that. We should take advantage of that and make sure that we really tell the world about this very real Savior. That's what the church is about, about telling people that Jesus really is alive and back from the dead, that if you love him, your life will not be final, and he truly can and will give you 
eternal life. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I pray that you'd move in the hearts of those who need you, that you'd draw them to you, that you would strengthen those who are weak in their faith, and that you would give the gift of faith, Lord, to those who you are calling, that people would literally, genuinely be saved and know it. If there's any trace of doubt in anyone here, make them sure and call them home. In Jesus' name, amen.